Welcome to this audio edition of Philip Husher's program notes for upcoming concerts by the Chicago Symphony Orchestra. I'm Rich Caparola. Concerts by the CSO on Thursday, September 21st through Tuesday, the 26th, feature Ricardo Muti directing a program of Lyotov, The Enchanted Lake, a suite from Stravinsky's The Firebird Ballet, and after intermission, Johannes Brahms' Symphony No. 2. Here are program notes by Philip Husher on The Firebird Suite by Stravinsky. The Firebird opened on June 25th, 1910. On June 26th, Stravinsky was a famous man. The great empresario Sergei Diaghilev had predicted as much. At one of the final dress rehearsals, he pointed to Stravinsky and said, Mark him well. He is a man on the eve of celebrity. Diaghilev was a good judge of such things, for in 1910, his circle included many of the most famous creative artists of the time. He was also perhaps excessively proud, for he had discovered Igor Stravinsky, or to be more accurate, he was the one who put Stravinsky in the right place at the right time. The rest was all Stravinsky's doing. The place was Paris in 1910. By chance, Diaghilev had heard Stravinsky's music for the first time just two years before at a concert in St. Petersburg. He immediately invited the 26-year-old composer to assist in orchestrating music for the 1909 ballet season in Paris. Stravinsky was not Diaghilev's first choice to compose his new ballet based on the Russian legend of the Firebird. He initially gave the job to Nikolai Cherepnin, who promptly had a falling out with the choreographer Mikhail Fokin, then to Anatole Lyotov, the prominent though modestly talented composer of the opening work on this week's program, The Enchanted Lake, as well as Alexander Glazinov and Nikolai Sokolov, who both declined. Finally, Diaghilev turned to the young, untested Stravinsky. The Firebird was a spectacular success. According to Ravel, the Parisian audience wanted a taste of the avant-garde, and this dazzling music by the daring young Russian fit the bill. The Firebird was Stravinsky's first large-scale commission, and being an overnight hit, it was quickly followed by two more. The first, Petrushka, enhanced his reputation. The second, the Rite of Spring, made him the most notorious composer alive. Both of those works were more revolutionary than the Firebird, less indebted to folk melody and the gestures of other masters, and spoke in a voice of greater individuality. But the Firebird is one of the most impressive calling cards in the history of music, a work of such brilliance that if he had written nothing else, Stravinsky's name would still be known to us today. Stravinsky later called the Firebird Orchestra wastefully large, even though he used it with formidable clarity and imagination. And in 1919, when he made his second concert suite from the complete ballet, he cut down the number of performers without lessening the music's impact or daring. This is the version performed this week. For me, Stravinsky wrote, the most striking effect in the Firebird was the natural harmonic string glissando near the beginning, which the bass chord touches off like a Catherine wheel. I was delighted to have discovered this, and I remember my excitement in demonstrating it to Rimsky's violinist and cellist sons. I remember, too, Richard Strauss's astonishment when he heard it two years later in Berlin.
The score is filled with delicious details, though none as novel as the one Stravinsky rightfully claimed as his own, and in the closing pages a magnificent sweep unmatched by much music written in the previous century and little since. With the Firebird, Stravinsky found instant and enduring fame. And, oh yes, to complete the picture, he later wrote, I was once addressed by a man in an American railway dining car and quite seriously as Mr. Fireberg. Here is Igor Stravinsky himself on the Firebird. I had already begun to think about the Firebird when I returned to St. Petersburg from Ustelug in the autumn of 1909, though I was not yet certain of the commission, which in fact did not come until December, more than a month after I had begun to compose. I remember the day Diaghilev telephoned me to say, go ahead, and my telling him I already had. Early in November, I moved from St. Petersburg to a dacha belonging to the Rimsky-Korsakov family, about 70 miles southeast of the city. I went there for a vacation, a rest in birch forests and snow-fresh air, but instead began to work on the Firebird. Andrei Rimsky-Korsakov, son of the composer, was with me at the time, and he often was during the following months. Because of this, the Firebird is dedicated to him. The introduction up to the bassoon and clarinet figure at bar six was composed in the country, as well as notations for later parts. I returned to St. Petersburg in December and remained there until, in March, I had finished the composition. The orchestra score was ready a month later and the complete music mailed to Paris by mid-April. The score is dated May 18th, but by that time I was merely retouching details. The Firebird did not attract me as a subject. Like all story ballets, it demanded descriptive music of a kind I did not want to write. I had not yet proved myself as a composer, and I had not earned the right to criticize the aesthetics of my collaborators, but I did criticize them, and arrogantly, though perhaps my age, 27, was more arrogant than I was. Above all, I could not abide the assumption that my music would be imitation Rimsky-Korsakov, especially as by that time I was in such revolt against poor Rimsky. However, if I say I was less than eager to fulfill the commission, I know that in truth my reservations about the subject were also an advance defense for my not being sure I could. But Diaghilev, the diplomat, arranged everything. He came to call on me one day with Fokin, Nijinsky, Boxt, and Benoit. When the five of them had proclaimed their belief in my talent, I began to believe too and accepted. Fokin is credited as the librettist of the Firebird, but I remember that all of us, and especially Boxt, who was Diaghilev's principal advisor, contributed ideas to the plan of the scenario. I should also add that Boxt was as much responsible for the costumes as Golovin. My own collaboration with Fokin means nothing more than that we studied the libretto together, episode by episode, until I knew the exact measurements required of the music. In spite of Fokin's wearying homiletics delivered at each meeting on the role of music as an accompaniment to dance, he taught me much, and I have worked with choreographers somewhat in the same way ever since. I like exact requirements.
I was flattered, of course, at the promise of a performance of my music in Paris, and my excitement on arriving in that city from Ostulig toward the end of May could hardly have been greater. These ardors were somewhat cooled, however, at the first rehearsal. The words for Russian export seemed to be stamped everywhere, both on the stage and in the music. The mimic scenes were especially obvious in the sense, but I could say nothing about them as they were what Fokin liked best. I was also deflated to discover that not all of my musical remarks were held to be oracular, and Pianet, the conductor, disagreed with me once in front of the whole orchestra. I had written non crescendo, a precaution common enough in the music of the last fifty years, but Pierre said, young man, if you do not want a crescendo, then do not write anything. The first night audience glittered indeed, but the fact that it was heavily perfumed is more vivid in my memory. The gaily elegant London audience, when I came to know it later, seemed almost deodorized by comparison. I sat in Diaghilev's box, where at intermission, artists, dowagers, aged egerias of the ballet, intellectuals, balletomanes appeared. I met, for the first time, Proust, Giraudoux, Paul Morin, Saint-Jean Perse, Claude, with whom years later I nearly collaborated on a musical treatment of the Book of Tobit at the Firebird, although I cannot remember whether at the premiere or at subsequent performances. At one of the latter I also met Sarah Bernhardt. She was thickly veiled, sitting in a wheelchair in her private box, and seemed terribly apprehensive lest anyone should recognize her. After a month of such society, I was happy to retire to a sleepy village in Brittany. A moment of unexpected comedy occurred near the beginning of the performance. Diaghilev had had the idea that a procession of real horses should march on stage in step with, to be exact, the last six-eighth notes of bar eight. The poor animals did enter on cue all right, but they began to neigh and whinny, and one of them, a better critic than an actor, left a malodorous calling card. The audience laughed, and Diaghilev decided not to risk a repetition in future performances. That he could have tried it even once seems incredible to me now, but the incident was forgotten in the general acclaim for the new ballet afterwards. I was called to the stage to bow at the conclusion and was recalled several times. I was still on stage when the final curtain had come down, and I saw Diaghilev coming towards me and a dark man with a double forehead whom he introduced as Claude Debussy. The great composer spoke kindly about the music, ending his words with an invitation to dine with him. Some years later, when we were sitting together in his box at a performance of Pelias, I asked him what he really thought of the Firebird. He said, Well, you had to start with something. Honest, but not extremely flattering. Yet, shortly after the Firebird premiere, he gave me his well-known photo in profile with a dedication, a Igor Stravinsky en toute sympathie artistique. I was not so honest about the work we were then hearing. I thought Pelias a great bore as a whole, and in spite of many wonderful pages. 
Igor Stravinsky himself on the Firebird Ballet. And here is a synopsis of the ballet. Fokine's adaptation of the fairy tale pits the Firebird, a good fairy, against the ogre Kachai, whose soul is preserved as an egg in a casket. A young prince, Ivan Tsarevich, wanders into Kachai's magic garden in pursuit of the Firebird. When he captures her, she pleads for her release and gives him one of her feathers, whose magic will protect him from harm. He then meets 13 princesses, all under Kachai's spell, and falls in love with one of them. When he tries to follow them into the magic garden, a great carillon sounds an alarm, and he is captured. Kachai is about to turn Ivan into stone when the prince waves the feather. The firebird appears. Her lullaby puts Kachai to sleep, and then she reveals the secret of his immortality. Ivan opens the casket and smashes the egg, killing Kachai. The captive princesses are freed, and Ivan and his beloved princess are betrothed. Program notes by Philip Pusher on the suite from The Firebird Ballet by Stravinsky. And now, on to Johannes Brahms' Symphony No. 2. Within months after the long-awaited premiere of his first symphony, Brahms produced another one. The two were as different as night and day, logically enough, since the first had taken two decades of struggle and soul-searching, and the second was written over a summer holiday. If it truly was Beethoven's symphonic achievement that stood in Brahms' way for all those years, nothing seems to have stopped the flow of this new symphony in D major. Brahms had put his fears and worries behind him. This music was composed at the picture-postcard village of Porchach on the Vortesee, where Brahms had rented two tiny rooms for his summer holiday and where he would write his violin concerto the next summer. The rooms apparently were ideal for composition, even though the hallway was so narrow that Brahms' piano couldn't be moved up the stairs. It is delightful here, Brahms wrote to Fritz Shemrock, his publisher, soon after arriving, and the new symphony bears witness to his apparent delight. Later that summer, when Brahms' friend Theodor Bilroth, an amateur musician, played through the score for the first time, he wrote to the composer at once, It is all rippling streams, blue sky, sunshine, and cool green shadows. How beautiful it must be at Portschach. Eventually, listeners began to call this Brahms' pastoral symphony, again raising the comparison with Beethoven's. But if Brahms' second symphony has a true companion, it is the work that precedes it on this week's program. The violin concerto he would write the following summer in Portschach, cut from the same D major cloth and reflecting the mood and even some of the thematic material of the symphony. When Brahms sent the first movement of his new symphony off to Clara Schumann, she predicted that this music would fare better with the public than the tough and stormy first, and she was right. The first performance on December 30, 1877 in Vienna under Hans Richter was a triumph, and the third movement had to be repeated. When Brahms conducted the second performance in Leipzig just after the beginning of the new year, the audience was again enthusiastic. But Brahms' real moment of glory came late in the summer of 1878 when his new symphony was a great success in his native Hamburg, where he had twice failed to win a coveted musical post. Still, it would be another decade before the honorary freedom of Hamburg, the city's highest honor, was given to him, and Brahms remained ambivalent about his birthplace for the rest of his life. 
In the meantime, the D major symphony found receptive listeners nearly everywhere it was played. Theodore Thomas, who would later found the Chicago Symphony, introduced the work to the United States on October 3, 1878, at a concert in New York City. From the opening bars of the Allegro Non Troppo, with their bucolic horn calls and woodwind chords, we prepare for the radiant sunlight and pure skies that Billroth promised. And with one soaring phrase from the first violins, Brahms' great pastoral scene unfolds before us. Although another of Billroth's letters to the composer suggests that a happy, cheerful mood permeates the whole work, Brahms knew that even a sunny day contains moments of darkness and doubt, moments when pastoral serenity threatens to turn tragic. It's that underlying tension, even drama, that gives this music its remarkable character. A few details stand out, two particularly bracing passages for the three trombones in the development section, and much later, just before the coda, a wavering horn call that emerges serene and magical. This is followed, as if it were the most logical thing in the world, by a jolly bit of dancehall waltzing, just before the music flickers and dies. Edward Hanslick, one of Brahms' champions, thought the adagio more conspicuous for the development of the themes than for the worth of the themes themselves. Hanslick wasn't the first critic to be wrong. This movement has very little to do with development as we know it, although it's unlike him to be so far off the mark when dealing with music by Brahms. Hanslick did notice that the third movement has the relaxed character of a serenade. It is, for all its initial grace and charm, a serenade of some complexity, with two frolicsome presto passages smartly disguising the main theme and a wealth of shifting accents. The finale is jubilant and electrifying. The clouds seem to disappear after the hushed opening bars, and the music blazes forward almost unchecked to the very end. For all of Brahms' concerns about measuring up to Beethoven, he seldom mentioned his admiration for Haydn and his ineffable high spirits, but that's who Brahms most resembles here. There is, of course, the great orchestral roar of triumph that always suggests Beethoven, but many moments are pure Brahms, like the ecstatic clarinet solo that rises above the bustle only minutes into the movement, or the warm and striding theme in the strings that immediately follows. The extraordinary brilliance of the final bars, as unbridled an outburst as any in Brahms, was not lost on his great admirer, Antonin Vorjak, when he wrote his Carnival Overture. Program notes by Philip Huscher on Johannes Brahms' Symphony No. 2. My name is Rich Caparella. Thanks for listening.